Section 6 of the Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Byzantine Empire. The Rearguard of European Civilization by Edward Ford The Onset and Repulse of Iran The Coming of Islam Of all the Byzantine emperors, Phocas was by far the worst. His one salient characteristic was barbarity. Of capacity he never showed any sign. His energies were employed in securing his position. He cleared his path of the friends of Maurice by a series of bloody executions. Narses, the able general who commanded on the Persian frontier, was terrorized into revolt, but repented, and came under safe conduct to Constantinople to clear himself. Phocas broke his word and burned him alive. He married his daughter Domencia to Priscus and advanced all available relatives to high positions. Plots were formed against him, but all were delated. One of these centered in the Empress Constantina. It was betrayed. The unhappy lady was barbarously tortured and finally put to death with her young daughters, a daughter-in-law, and nearly all the surviving adherents of Maurice who could be seized. Kusru II of Persia saw that his time had come. He had his casus belli in the murder of Maurice, and perhaps a desire to avenge his benefactor really had a place among his mixed motives though when rome was harassed in the west persia could hardly remain quiet in any case the persian king's personal motives were soon lost to view in the vista opened to him by his unexpected success the wars of rome with parthia and persia have for the most part a curious air of unreality there is much fighting, much plundering, and carrying away of captives, immense private misery, but no decisive success on either side. But now the whole character of struggle appears to change. In 603, the Persians poured into Mesopotamia and defeated the eastern army under Germanus and Leontius. Next year, they again crossed the border and defeated Leontius at Arzamon. The year 605 was comparatively quiet, but in 606, Syria was ravaged right down to the sea, and Dara was taken. In 607, the Persians invaded Asia Minor, and in 608, an army under Shahen 
made its way across Cappadocia, Galatia, and Bithynia to the gates of Chalcedon. It was the first time for centuries that Western Asia Minor had been troubled by a foreign foe. In 609, matters appeared desperate. The forces in Europe had been transferred to Asia to act against the Persians, and the Illyrian provinces were overrun more and more by Avars and Slavs. The empire held only the coast districts. Asia Minor was being ravaged. The army was beaten and demoralized. Phocas still sat on his red throne in Constantinople, where he maintained a veritable reign of terror. There seemed no hope unless he could be replaced by an able man. In these wild years, the one peaceful portion of the empire was Africa, well governed by its capable and popular exarch, the aged general Heraclius. Phocas seemed to have feared to depose him. On his side, Heraclius was joined every day by desperate refugees, but dare not revolt, because his wife, Epiphania, and Eudocia, the betrothed of his son, were in the capital. In 608, however, Priscus, thoroughly sick of his miserable father-in-law, and perhaps ashamed of the share which he had taken in his elevation, began to correspond with the exarch. After a time, Phocas got wind of these negotiations, and imprisoned Epiphania and Eudocia. Their lives were obviously hardly worth an hour's purchase, and Heraclius prepared for war. In the summer of 610, all was ready. The exarch's son, Heraclius, sailed directly for the capital with a powerful fleet, while his nephew, Nicetas, marched eastwards to secure Egypt. On entering the Dardanelles, Heraclius was joined by many adherents, and the garrison of Constantinople deserted as the fleet sailed up to the walls. The ships in the harbor, manned by Phocas' few determined followers, made resistance, but were soon overpowered, and Phocas, seized in the palace, was brought bound on board the flagship. Wretch, exclaimed the conqueror, you have foully misgoverned the state. See if you will do any better, yelled the doomed tyrant, as the seamen dragged him away to death. His chief partisans and his brother, Domenciolus, were executed, and Heraclius entered Constantinople in triumph. The captive ladies were released. On October 5th, the conqueror was crowned and married in Sancta Sophia, and then was face to face with the gigantic difficulties of his situation. Matters could scarcely be worse. The army was a ruin. 
Theophanes gravely assures us that every man of the force of 602 had perished, except two. Heraclius appointed Priscus commander in the east, and he appears to have raised and formed a kind of private army, with which he guarded the Tauric frontier for some years, while Theodore, the emperor's brother, held Cilicia. More than this Heraclius scarcely hoped to do at first, and even this he was presently obliged to abandon. The European provinces were left almost unprotected outside the walls of the great cities. The Slavs colonized the deserted inland. The Avars careered far and wide. In Syria and Egypt there were hardly any troops, and the population as a whole was attached to Monophysite and Nestorian doctrines alienated by disasters and exactions of the government and generally sullen and disaffected. Africa, ruled by the emperor's father, was the one faithful and unattacked province, and even from Africa little help was to be expected, since any withdrawal of troops was certain to be followed by territorial losses. The Spanish garrisons were left to themselves, and began to fall one by one into the hands of the Visigoths. So, too, was Italy. At home, Heraclius was confronted with a powerful and insubordinate bureaucracy, and the increasingly insolent aristocracy. He was constantly hampered by the supposedly necessary task of supplying and keeping in good humor the Constantinopolitan populace. Heraclius seems to have devoted his first years to restoring some order at the center of the empire. So weak was his authority that on finding a great noble guilty of malpractices, he had literally to trepan and assassinate the culprit, being quite unable to deal open justice. Demoralization was rampant. In 612, the young empress Eudocia died after presenting her husband with two children, Epiphania and Heraclius Constantine. She was buried with great solemnity, but the occasion of her funeral afforded the most awful example of the barbarism of the times that we yet have seen, worse even than the torture of Constantina and her daughters. A servant girl chanced to cough or spit as the dead empress's beer passed by, and a little saliva fell on the edge of the pal. It will hardly be believed that she was seized and beheaded on the spot. The story is so horrible in its naked savagery that we can only hope that it is exaggerated. The emperor was probably justified in making a second marriage, but it cast a not undeserved stigma upon his character, which clung to it until the end of his life, for his second wife was his niece Martina. He was frantically in love with her, and until his death 
lost no opportunity of manifesting his affection. Possibly he thought that he was committing no worse fault than if he had espoused a first cousin, but the act seriously injured him in the eyes of both clergy and people. And when Marina's first child was born, wry naked, and the second deaf and dumb, we cannot wonder that men spoke of the wrath of God. Abroad, disaster was the order of the day. Priscus soon began to show insubordination, and in 612 Heraclius enticed him to the capital, and tonsured him, pacifying his mutinous troops by presence of mind and tactful words. For the moment, however, it seemed as if he had only removed another defense of the empire, and the next six years were the most disastrous of his whole reign. In 614, the Persians poured into Syria and overrun the north with little resistance. The fortresses of Mesopotamia fell one after another, and with the capture of Damascus, the Persian power was interposed between the disconnected halves of the empire in Eurasia and Africa. Next year, they marched into Palestine under a leader called Shar Baraz, the royal boar, conquered the country, stormed Jerusalem, massacring or enslaving 90,000 of its Christian inhabitants, and carrying off the patriarch of the True Cross to Persia. All Jews were significantly spared. There were many of their co-religionists in the Persian ranks. They bought Christian slaves wholesale in order to wreak their vengeance upon them, a terrible testimony to the manner in which they had been treated. In 616, the Persians advanced into Egypt, and the disaffected population joined them with alacrity, so that the great grain-producing province passed into their hands almost without opposition. Nicetas, the cousin of Heraclius, its governor, was forced to abandon even Alexandria and flee to Cyprus. In 617, the Persians under Shahen penetrated to the Bosphorus and captured Chalcedon. They remained there for six years. Heraclius seems really for a moment to have lost heart, or at any rate to have thought that any means, even the most disgraceful, would be justified to procure a truce. Shahen declared that his master only warred with the murderers of Maurice and offered his safe conduct to ambassadors to the Persian court. Kusru, already beginning to show signs of the absolute madness of pride, which ultimately ruined him, flayed the unfortunate commander alive for his presumption and imprisoned the ambassadors. To Heraclius, he sent a letter demanding immediate surrender and biding him not to trust his Christ, 
who could not save himself from crucifixion by the Jews. It was addressed to Heraclius, his vile and insensate slave, from Kusru, the greatest of the gods and lord of the world, an example of pride before a fall, truly. In the capital matters were gloomy, for plague and famine reigned. The loss of Egypt had cut off supplies, and disease followed in the train of hunger. Heraclius could no longer feed the populace, and he declared that he must withdraw the seat of government to faithful Carthage. There was universal consternation. The selfish, headless state paupers were at last galvanized into acting like men. Hitherto, Constantinople, despite the patriotism shown on one or two occasions, had been little more than another Rome, a source of weakness rather than strength, draining the revenue and contributing nothing to the defensive service of the empire. Now, at last, it was brought home to the people that they were not the faithful subjects of the emperor, but only his pampered children, and that there were others more deserving. There was a great ferment, resulting in a solemn covenant between Heraclius and his people. The emperor promised not to leave the capital. He would regard its inhabitants as his children. He would defend the empire to the last, and would take the field in person. The patriarch Sergius offered the entire treasures of the church for the expenses of the mortal struggle. The people enlisted by thousands. The capital was at last forced from its isolation, and stood out as the true leader of the empire, a position which it never afterwards lost. For a few months, corn was still distributed by the government, but at a fixed price. Then the practice was quietly dropped. Emperor and people were united in a solemn resolve to do their best for the faith. The crusade, the first crusade, had begun. First of all, however, the rear of the empire had to be relieved. Heraclius resolved to come to terms with the Avars, and a meeting was arranged between the emperor and the Kahan at Perinthus. Heraclius went without any misgivings, but the whole affair was a piece of disgraceful treachery. The Avaric host fell upon the emperor and his escort, and Heraclius, tearing off his crown and flinging away his robes, only escaped by the speed of his horse. The Avar horsemen swarmed outside the walls of Constantinople, and are said to have swept away 270,000 prisoners. To turn on the Avars was to neglect the East. With bitterness and shame, Heraclius bowed himself to ransom the captives. 
The Kahan perhaps may have felt some shame at his treachery. The Emperor made an attempt to conciliate him by offering him the post of guardian to his son. For the present, the Avars retired, but next year they once more made raids on Thrace, and it was not until 621 that they were temporarily got rid of by a subsidy of 200,000 solidi. In 620, reinforcements came westward from Persia to the army at Chalcedon under Shar Baraz. On their march they captured Ankira. On their arrival, an attempt was made to pass the Bosphorus. Presumably the Persians had constructed transport vessels at Chalcedon during their years of occupation, but the Roman fleet was strong. They were severely defeated, losing at least 4,000 men besides the ships which they had laboriously constructed, and the army of the crusade was encouraged by its first success. During 621, the final arrangements were made for the great campaign. The capital was placed in charge of the patrician Bonus, a loyal and able general, and the patriarch Sergius. They had in their care the emperor's eldest son, Constantine, a boy of nine. The great fleet covered the city against the threats of Persians at Chalcedon. In the spring of 622, Heraclius moved. He embarked his available troops and, sailing up the Gulf of Nicomedia, landed them, thus turning the Persian position at Chalcedon. Sharbaraz at once abandoned his station and came back to attack the Romans. Heraclius then advanced eastward into Asia Minor, and Sharbaraz perforce marched after him. Heraclius, having drawn him away nearly to the Armenian frontier, turned to bay and, after some clever maneuvering, severely defeated him. He left his army in cantonments and returned with prestige and popularity, much enhanced, to Constantinople. In 623, Heraclius set out to join the army taking with him the wife whom he idolized. He concentrated on Caesarea in Cappadocia and moved northeastwards across Armenia into the valley of the Araxes, thus turning the Persians who were prepared to oppose the passage of the Euphrates. In Armenia he took Dovin and Nakichevan and pushed on rapidly through Media to Ganzaka, tucked e Suleiman, where Kusru himself was in residence. Kusru was seized with panic and fled, and Heraclius stormed and sacked the city. He next captured and destroyed Thebarmes, 
the supposed birthplace of the great teacher Zoroaster, and thence advanced southwest towards Dastagerd, the favorite residence of Kusru. Now, however, for the present, his success ended. An army under Shahen, it looks as if this frequently recurring name means nothing but royal leader was in his front. Sharbaraz had come up from the west and was threatening his right flank. He therefore retreated northwards into winter quarters in Albania. In the spring of 624 he was attacked by three armies under the generals Sharbaraz, Shahen, and Sharablakhan, respectively. By able maneuvering, he contrived to save himself from a combined attack and cut in upon their line of advance. Having obtained the interior position, he threw himself on Sharbaraz and Sharablakhan, badly defeated them, and then, swinging round upon Shahen, who was following behind, routed him also. The three defeated commanders now effected a junction, and their united force, strengthened by reinforcements, was so strong that Heraclius did not venture to attack it. He retreated towards the Caucasus, followed by the Persians, but they dared not involve their hosts of cavalry among the mountains, and soon withdrew. Heraclius, having reorganized and recruited his army, once more advanced and broke into the Persians' line of defense before they could concentrate their forces. Sharbaraz was in position before Van. Heraclius attacked and defeated him and stormed the city. The Persians retreated southward and Romans went into winter quarters in Armenia. In 625, Kusru altered his plan of campaign. He determined to play against Heraclius his own strategic game. Sharbaraz was placed in chief command and ordered to invade Asia Minor. He therefore marched westward into Comagene, but as soon as he moved, the Roman emperor began to advance from Armenia. Following in the track of the Persians, he entered Roman Mesopotamia and recaptured Amida, Dara, and Martyropolis. Sharbaraz was prepared to defend the passage of the Euphrates at Samoseta, but Heraclius, by one of his masterly flanking movements, maneuvered him out of his position and crossed lower down. Pressing forward into Cilicia, he recovered the entire province and ended his successful campaign by defeating Sharbaraz on the Saros. The year 626 was the decisive one of the war. Kusru evolved a grandiose but incoherent plan of operations, by which the Roman emperor 
was to be held at bay in Armenia, and a great invasion of Asia Minor carried out. He had been in communication with the Kahan of the Avars, and the treacherous barbarian was only too willing to advance again on Constantinople. The best troops were selected from the various armies of Persia, and collected 50,000 strong under Shahen, who was to hold Heraclius in check. The other forces were assembled into one army, and placed under Sharbaraz for the invasion of the empire. He marched early in the year, and was well on his way before Heraclius was aware of the movement. But Kuzru and the Kahan forgot that the empire held the command of the sea. Heraclius sent a picked detachment to the Euxine coast, whence it was conveyed to Constantinople. He then placed a strong corps under his brother Theodore to observe Shahen, and himself remained in Lazica, ready to support Theodore or return to the aid of Constantinople as necessary. Theodore, by himself, was too strong for Shahen's 50,000 golden spearmen. He entirely defeated them, and the hapless general committed suicide. Kusru took a petty vengeance by flogging the lifeless corpse. Clearly, he was verging on insanity. Meanwhile, Heraclius had not been idle. He entered into communication with the Turkey nation of the Khazars, which has now becoming domiciled in the Volga basin, and the chief Khan, Zebu, prepared to come to his assistance with 40,000 riders. Meanwhile, Sharbaraz had proceeded through Asia Minor and reached Chalcedon without opposition in the field, while the Avars made their way to Constantinople, 80,000 strong, dragging with them all kinds of engines for a siege. On June 29, they blockaded the capital on the land side, while the Persians crowded the heights of Chrysopolis. But guarded by the Roman navy, the Bosphorus was as effective a barrier to their junction as the British Channel was to the power of Napoleon. Moreover, the city was impregnable to the Avars. The suburb of Blacherne had been included in the circuit of the fortifications, and the barbarians looked in dismay at the vast moat and line after line of rampart garrisoned by 12,000 cavalry, exclusive of infantry. On July 31, a fierce assault was made all along the landward line of wall, but beaten off with great slaughter. It was evident that, without the assistance of the trained Persian troops, the Avars were helpless, and on August 3, 
a great attempt was made to effect a junction of the Allies by means of boats and rafts. It was entirely defeated by the Roman fleet, which rammed and sunk the clumsy craft right and left, with the loss of thousands of men who manned them. The Avars forthwith abandoned the siege and retreated northward, and though the Persians still held Chalcedon, they were powerless to harm the capital. The first great siege of Constantinople had failed. In Armenia, Heraclius had been joined by his new ally, Zebu Khan, to whom he promised the land of his daughter, Epiphania Eudocia. It was a political necessity, but the Khazars were not savages. Thereafter, more than one matrimonial alliance was contracted between the Roman and Khazar royal houses. Epiphania's fate need not have been a pitiable one. At all events, she was spared it by the death of her prospective husband. Before he died, however, Zebu had led his wild horsemen all over Media, and had dealt another blow at the tottering power of Kusru. Aparvez no more. Heraclius remained in the north, not necessarily inactive, for nearly a year after receiving the news of the Avaric repulse before Constantinople. His Khazar allies had returned home with their plunder, but in 627 Zebu's successor dispatched a fresh force to his assistance. Meanwhile, he called in his detachments and concentrated his strength for the decisive blow. Kusru, on his side, rallied the broken army of Shahen and gathered together every available fighting man for a last effort under a new general called by Byzantine historians Razatis, whose name, therefore, was probably Riza. His station was at Ganzaka. Heraclius must have been somewhere to the northward, perhaps about the modern Julfa on the Araxes. Orders were sent by the Persian king to Sharbaraz to abandon Chalcedon and to retreat on Mesopotamia. The message was intercepted, and Sharbaraz remained in the west. On October 9, 627, Heraclius began to move, but for some weeks nothing of importance happened. The writer's suggestion is that Riza was too strongly posted to be vulnerable to a direct attack. Thereupon, about the middle of November, Heraclius marched westward, past his enemy's front. He could now confidently take risks, crossed the mountains into Adiabene, passed the greater Zab on December the 1st, and pointed forward down the Tigris for Dastagerd in Ctesiphon. Riza, abandoning his position at Ganzaka, hastened to throw himself in the way. 
His terrible half-insane master had given him order to conquer or die. Near the site of Nineveh he came up with Heraclius. There can be no reasonable doubt that the Persians were far superior in number, but the majority must have been raw levies. Almost on the ground on which Alexander had trampled the pride of the Achaemenids in the dust, a tremendous struggle raged all through Saturday, December the 12th, between the hairs of the greatest of European conquerors and the hosts of the Sassanid great kings. Riza and his soldiers did their duty manfully and well, and for long no decisive advantage was gained by either side. Towards evening, Heraclius rallied the strength of his cavalry for a final effort, and Riza, catching sight of him on his white charger Dorcon, leading the oncoming squadrons and remembering his master's grim words, dashed forward and engaged him in mortal combat. Heraclius rode him down and slew him, and his fall was the turning point of the day. With the last tremendous charge, the Roman horsemen spread disorder through the faltering ranks, and the great battle, which had lasted from dawn to nightfall without intermission, ended in defeat and practical destruction of the Persian army. So fine was the spirit of the Persians that one splendid division stood to its arms all night on the field within bowshot of the victors, but at dawn it sullenly withdrew. Kusru had no cause to blush for the ill-treated warriors who defended his cause so well. Heraclius, moving forward from Nineveh, celebrated Christmas at Yezdim, a palace of Kusru, and on New Year's Day entered Dastagird, while his vanquished enemy, accompanied only by his beloved wife, Shirin, and a few attendants, escaped through a gap in the wall and fled to the south. The plunder was enormous, for the greater part of Kusru's treasures were there. Three hundred Roman standards were recovered. The emperor permitted no bloodshed, but the splendid palaces were ruthlessly sucked and given to the flames. If this seem an act of pure barbarism, there is the fact that the provocation was great. From Dastagird, the Roman army advanced on Ctesiphon, but was met with news that a revolution had broken out. Kusru, raging at the failure of Sharbaraz to appear, and refusing to believe that his order had never been received, sent to execute him. The message was seized by Roman troops and communicated to Sharbaraz, who at once concluded an armistice and marched homeward to support the revolution. The end of story of Kusru Aparvez, who for ten years had been greater than any king of Persia, was that his son, Shero, dethroned and imprisoned him. 
His death, of course, speedily followed. The new king at once opened negotiations for peace, and Heraclius retired across Zagros in deep snow and went into cantonments at Ganzaka. On April 3rd, envoys from Shero arrived with full powers, and the treaty was concluded. The ancient frontiers of the two empires were restored. The Persians were to surrender all prisoners, booty, and sacred relics captured by them, and pay a war indemnity. On April 8, Heraclius set out from Ganzaka on his homeward march, and the Persian war came to an end. It seems necessary to say a word on the Persian strategy, if only in reply to the allegations of those who, to the writer's knowledge, in conversation and in print, have maintained that if Kusru's plan had been properly executed, Persia must have succeeded. Clearly the same may be said of many military plans. Kusru never made any attempt to utilize the naval resource of Syria to destroy the Roman navy. Constantinople was immensely strong, but it might have fallen had the Persians been able to cross the Bosphorus. As it was, Heraclius was able to start for the east and reconquer the whole empire from the capital. The capital was nearly all that remained of the state, but it was impregnable because the empire held the sea. Heraclius turned Chalcedon by sea, and by that single movement recovered Asia Minor. He never lost the initiative. When in 623 he invaded Media, he threw the Persian armies entirely upon the defensive, and Kusru's attempt to assume the offensive in 625 was futile, because he left no force to contain the emperor, who promptly marched after Sharbaraz, drove him back, and reconquered Cilicia and Mesopotamia. The great plan of 626 failed to take into account the Roman command of the sea. The Persian containing force in Armenia was too weak to withstand even half the emperor's army, and Sharbaraz at Chalcedon was absolutely in the air. Constantinople could not be taken by the Avars, and if every fighting man in Persia had been at Chalcedon, the host would have been impotent so long as the Roman navy guarded the strait. Again, I must emphasize the point that the command of the sea was the fundamental principle of Heraclius' strategy, and since Kusru failed to recognize this, 
he is damned as either willfully blind or hopelessly incompetent. On May 15, the imperial dispatches announcing the conclusion of peace were read out from the pulpit of Sancta Sophia, and a few weeks later the emperor and his victorious host reached the capital. The population poured out to meet them, acclaiming the conqueror as Scipio, and wrought up to fanatic enthusiasm by the sight of the Holy Cross, which was carried in the triumphal procession and afterwards raised on the altar of Sancta Sophia. The comparison of the emperor with Scipio was just. Heraclius had saved new Rome as Scipio had Rome on the Tiber. Yet already the weapon was in the forging that was to rob him of his recovered provinces, and almost to do the deed that Hannibal had failed to achieve. In the last year of the war, the emperor had received a curious letter from an Arab named Mohammed, claiming to be the prophet of God, and bidding him embrace the new religion which he had founded. Heraclius sent presents and some kind of reply, thinking probably of the possibility of winning a new ally. But next year, 629, the fanatics of the new faith raided the Palestinian frontier and gained a very bloody and trifling success over a Roman detachment at Muta, near the Dead Sea. For the present, nothing more was heard. Certainly nothing to forebode the dire tempest that was approaching. The public-spirited action of the Church had enabled the Emperor to make the effort by which the Empire had been saved, but it had unfortunate consequences. In the first place, the Emperor considered it imperative to liquidate, at the earliest possible moment, the Great Loan, and to accomplish this, the provinces were heavily taxed. Syria had under the Persians doubtless endured much military violence, but its direct fiscal burdens do not appear to have been heavy. Egypt had been practically independent. The new taxation, therefore, excited great disaffection, which was increased by religious feeling. Syria was mainly Nestorian and Jacobite, Egypt solidly Monophysite. Heraclius had some hopes, apparently, of unifying the various sects. He had the advantage that his influence with the whole body of Orthodox clergy was great. His doctrinal speculations were finally expressed in the ecthesis of 638. Men were forbidden to discuss the existence of one will or two wills in the being of our Saviour. But it was nonetheless 
set forth that there was in him one will. The effect of the emperor's monothelitic ideas was to still further divide the already distracted church. Another result of the co-partnership of church and state was that the Jews were persecuted, and the unhappy race became more and more alienated and was ready to give its cordial support to any invader. In other quarters, the outlook was more promising. Spain had been finally lost, and Italy was falling away. But the Avars Empire was breaking up, and there was no further danger to be apprehended from them. Probably the failure of the great expedition against Constantinople in 626 was the final blow to the tottering barbaric power. Its various vassals, Bulgarians and others, broke into open revolt. The Avars continued to be a torment to the West, but were never again formidable. The whole Balkan inland was now occupied by Slavonic tribes. Heraclius made every effort to draw them into direct dependence on the empire. It is not true that he established them as vassal settlers of the state, but probably Theophanes' statements have some reference to his friendly relations with them, though the precise nature of these relations is obscure. Heraclius's main attention appears after 628 to have been devoted to the East, where Persia was, in a sense, politically subordinate. In 639, he succeeded in elevating the Phil-Roman general Sharbaraz to the throne. He proved an Oriental despot of the worst kind and was murdered. But after some trouble, his son, Yezdegerd III, succeeded him, still by extensions of Heraclius. On the whole, the outlook was not unpromising. The emperor's personal renown and influence were immense. It seemed that a return might be made to the ancient peace of Rome, when an irresistible power suddenly appeared and extinguished all such fair hopes forever. In 622, Mohammed had established a new religious and political era by the famous flight from Mecca. In 632, he died, having conquered all Arabia, and made it not merely subservient, but in great measure fanatically devoted to the religion which he had founded. It is not proposed here to enter into any discussion of the character of the founder of the Mohammedan religion. All that concerns us is that the moral and intellectual power which he indubitably wielded made the disunited Arabs the most 
terrible enemy that the Romans had seen. How terrible and overwhelming the mere unaided impulse of Mohammedan fanaticism may be has been shown in recent days. It was mad charges like those of Tamai and Abu Clea that the soldiers of Heraclius had now to face, and they had no advantage except in their superior drill. They were not conspicuously better armed. Mohammed, at his death, was preparing to launch armies against Rome and Persia. In 633, the Mohammedans began to attack Persia, but it was not until 634 that the second horde, under Abu Ubaidah, appeared on the Syrian frontier and besieged Bostra, which was captured by treachery. Heraclius himself was at this time resident in northern Syria, and he sent orders to concentrate the troops in the south against the intruders. This was done, but on July 30, the army was beaten at Ajnadin, and the Saracenic horde moved north to blockade Damascus. Heraclius, feeling the importance of the crisis, concentrated a large army for its relief. The Caliph sent large reinforcements to the army in Syria, part drawn from the troops in Persia and led by the famous warrior Khaled, the Sword of God. The two forces met at Yermuk. The Roman army is stated at the most absurd figures, one being the impossible total of 140,000 fighting men, 80,000 regulars and 60,000 light horse of the friendly Arab kingdom of Ghassan. Seeing that only a month had elapsed since Ajnadin, the collection of 80,000 regulars in Syria was an impossibility. There may have been from 40,000 to 60,000 regulars, and perhaps 20,000 Ghassanids at the most. The Saracens are said to have numbered 45,000, but may very well have been as strong as the Romans. Heraclius, sixty years old and in failing health, was not in the field. The commander-in-chief was a Persarmenian named Vardan. Khaled really commanded the Arabs. At first the day went against the Mohammedans, but after furious fighting the Roman army was at last driven back and broken. The loss was enormous, but the Saracens also had suffered heavily. It is said that one of their divisions broke and fled pell-mell, and was only shamed into a fresh stand by the jeers and reproaches of the women in the camp. The Romans had fought well. The army that, with sword and spear only, could face and for long beat back a dervish charge, must have been a splendid one. The results of the defeat were terrible. Damascus was besieged 
and after desperate resistance fell early in 635. Heraclius, old and weary, ill and disheartened, filled with the foreboding that all was in vain, took the field but could do nothing. He dared not risk his demoralized army in the field, and the Arabs took and sacked Emesa and Heliopolis. He could only station his troops to cover the north, and himself hastened to Jerusalem, took the true cross from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where he had replaced it five years before, after his triumph over Persia, and sailed for Constantinople. His life-work was undone. As his ship drew away into the Mediterranean, he stood on her deck, surveying the retreating coast in bitter despair, and stretching out his arms, cried in his anguish, Farewell, Syria, farewell forever. A.D. 636. On the retreat of Heraclius, the army broke out into mutiny and proclaimed the general Vardan emperor. Some of the troops, however, remained faithful. Heraclius sent assistance and the mutiny was put down. Meanwhile, the Arabs had obtained large reinforcements, and one army operated in the north while the other invaded Palestine. The mutiny distracted the operations of the Romans, who could make no stand. Aleppo, Antioch, and Chalcis were taken, and with them all but a fragment of Syria was conquered. In 637, Jerusalem, after a siege of over twelve months, was forced to submit, the Caliph Omar coming from Mecca to receive the capitulation. When the patriarch Sophronius saw the aged Arab in his rough camel's hair cloak, kneeling at the altar of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, he said to have groaned that the abomination of desolation had indeed come into the holy place. To the writer's mind, Omar, with all his rudeness, was not a worse representative of the church faith than thousands of bedizened bishops before and since, whose conception of morality and charity has been no whit above that of the caliph. The clouds gathered fast. Heraclius was already in 638 suffering from dropsy, which was looked upon as punishment for his marriage of Martina, but there was no thought of yielding to the evil fortune that had befallen the empire. An army was assembled at Amida, and Heraclius Constantine, the emperor's eldest son by Eudocia, came to take command. Several Syrian towns were recovered, and Constantine laid siege to Emesa. Khaled, collecting every available man, hastened to the rescue, 
and a battle was fought which decided the fate of Syria for three centuries. The Arabs were completely victorious. The Roman army was broken and destroyed. Its shattered remains fell back behind the chain of Taurus, and the end of Roman domination in the Orient had come. Edessa, Dara, and Martyropolis were taken. All Syria, except the island city of Aradus, was lost. In 639, the Emir Amru crossed the Isthmus of Suez into Egypt. The Patriarch Cyrus, as far back as 635, had offered to pay tribute. The population was friendly enough to the invaders. The only opposition to be expected was from the trifling garrison and the Greek residents. Amru overcame this in two stubborn fights in which he lost so heavily that he was forced to halt until he received a reinforcement of 12,000 warriors from Caliph Omar. Thus strengthened, he advanced upon Alexandria, the troops and Greeks opposing him at every step, turning to bay again and again, and fighting doggedly. At last, in October 640, Amru drove them into Alexandria and laid siege to it, and in December 641, after a siege of fourteen months, the great city fell. Heraclius did not live to hear of its loss. For three years he had been slowly dying. His disease gained more and more upon him. All around him was ruin and disaster, and in his place the wife for whom he had sacrificed the good opinion of men and, as many believed, his eternal peace, was intriguing to secure the succession of her own son, Heraclius. Old, worn-out, broken-hearted, oppressed by misfortune, Heraclius was Heraclius to the end. Unable to leave his bed, he was urging on preparations for a great expedition to succour Egypt when kindly death came to relieve him. On February 10, 641, he passed away at the age of 65, after an agitated reign of 30 years. His misfortunes must not allow us to blind ourselves to his merits. He had reconquered the eastern provinces only to lose them again. But his administration had left its mark on the empire, and to the good effects of his work of reorganization much of the credit due for the steady stand made against the oncoming Saracen must be attributed. Syria and Egypt had gone. Africa was doomed. But Asia Minor had been solidly welded together into the main strength of the empire. Often wasted as it was to be, it was never a willing victim. 
its gallant provincials filled the ranks of the army and held their own for more than four centuries there was none of the spiritless lethargy of the late roman days and to heraclius must the chief glory be given under him the people showed the first sign of anything like true patriotism that the empire had yet seen he was a great organizer a great general both as strategist and tactician his political measures were commonly characterized by wisdom in conception and skill in execution in religious matters his errors were such as few monarchs would in his place have avoided his internal administration laid the foundations of the great reconstruction under the isaurians few monarchs have ever accomplished so much under such calamitous circumstances and none has a better title to the respect and admiration of mankind than the emperor heraclius end of section six recording by mike botez